In this country, we believe that there should be freedom for all, even though not all of us believe in it. Join Tom and Chase as they explore politics, economics, and everything else that threatens your individual liberty. This is The Briefing Podcast. We are live. Free for all episode 15. Welcome back for another episode of the Free For All podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate everybody that continues to listen and support us. Uh, please remember that the show is available wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether that is YouTube, Spotify, Google Play, or on Apple Podcasts. Also remember uh, to like and subscribe to the show, uh, as well as our socials to keep up to date with the latest on the show and what's been going on. Uh, we are on Instagram at Free For All Podcast and on Twitter at FFA Podcast 1776. Yes. All right, guys. So this week, we kind of wanted to touch back on the immigration topic and also talk a bit about education. With the power of the presidency and everything, uh, pretty much the entire federal government being handed over this year from the Republicans to the Democrats. Both education and immigration are at the forefront of our domestic policy. So uh, we're, we're going to get into some recent news in those areas and uh, what this will mean for years to come. So uh, to kick us off, I'm going to talk about the border crisis. So obviously, uh, we talked a bit about the border crisis in our Kids in Cages episode and about how it was hypocritical for the Biden administration to have all these overflowing uh, migrant facilities when they were criticizing Trump basically at every turn, saying that he was uh, anti-immigrant and all this other stuff, and he hated Mexicans. And obviously the media colluded with them, and they selectively covered the situation based upon who was in office. So now with, with Biden in office, they're not paying attention to it at all. So uh, with this episode, we want to talk about why the people are coming, who's getting through, and uh, how this is going to keep snowballing. So Basically, what motivated me to want to make this episode is I was listening to a recent interview that Theo Vaughn put out, who's a comedian of all people, and you may or may not take him seriously because he's funny, but uh, he did a very serious and a very actually pretty thorough interview, way better journalism than some of these people are on TV. It's absolutely insane. But he did an interview with a former border agent whose name was Roy Villarreal. And this interview really opened my eyes because it's not really often that you get to hear from the agents or what's going on on our southern border. Like I said, they, they do a lot to try to cover it up. I mean, look how it took uh, Project Veritas, who are basically undercover journalists who pretty much lie and sneak into places to be able to uncover some of those terrible things. And uh, it, it took them to be the first ones posting all these images of people wrapped in the space blankets, packed in these facilities uh, while all this COVID stuff's going on and Biden was criticizing Trump right before his presidency. Anyway, the, the former agent pretty much goes down and you know talks about his experiences at the border. And he, he was describing how the cartels have basically run our southern border for decades. You know, not only through owning officials both in Mexico and the US and buying people off to, to look the other way, but by pretty much finding the flaws in our immigration system and exploiting them. And uh, so, so one of the things he talked about, he said there's all these kids who have to travel over the border to go to school, and I, I have no idea why this is. Um, kind of seems like uh, it'd be a loophole to begin with, but 
they would hollow out the school books and smuggle drugs through there just because they knew that children would not be prosecuted. So this is just, you know, even if they get caught, it's not even like nothing's going to happen and they can they can know this and they can exploit that. So, um, you know, he also spoke about another tactic and it keeps getting more and more complex as the years go by. So uh, smugglers would go in a group and they would have like three or four or five guys and they would send a guy with the least value drug, valuable drugs in the front, like pot, a couple of pounds of pot or whatever. And then he gets arrested, but he's kind of like a decoy. And then the guys uh, with the, you know, with the meth is next. And if he gets arrested, he's a decoy for the guy with the fentanyl, because what brings in the most money? It's whatever you can sneak the most over of, you know, whatever's whatever has the highest street price or whatever. And they're, they're just they're just exploiting and we, we don't have enough time and we don't have enough agents to keep to keep tracking all these people down, especially when we don't have a wall. Um, so, you know, the cartels are just going to find a way through whatever we do. And until we really get serious and change our policy with this border stuff, we can't just keep chasing these guys around no matter how many uh, agents we hire. Well, yeah, because even during during Trump's administration, he had said that he had increased the presence of border agents at the border to sort of combat the fact that we didn't have a wall built yet. But at the same time, the amount of people that he had at the border still wasn't enough. Like there's still uh, there's still a massive overflow problem. Um, which has just gotten even worse under Biden, given the fact that he doesn't really care enough to keep the border heavily staffed. But, you know, if you look and think about shows like Narcos or any of these other popular documentaries about drug dealers and cartels on Netflix, you know, they really aren't joking. Like even the majority of Narcos is a true story. The cartels will, will, will use literally any means necessary to make their money. And they're very well versed at smuggling drugs and people over the border because they've done this for decades. After all, like, how do you, th- like, they do need people to hand drugs off to on the other side. So, how do you think El Chapo has gotten out of jail in Mexico every single time he's captured? You know, the cartels are smart enough to understand how the game is played because they're the ones who created the game in the first place. Um, the US just has been playing catch up for decades. And, you know, we've, the US has, has had, a couple wins here and there, you know, in the drug war, like getting uh, Pablo Escobar and a couple of these other big names in the Mexican drug cartels, but that's not an end game. Um, Just taking one guy out or whatever of the operation is not going to end that operation entirely because these drug lords groom several different people to take their places in the event that they are captured or uh, killed or, or anything of the sort. There are many people that can take over these operations and continue to run them um, and run them effectively and efficiently. And so we have absolutely no, <laughs> no effective means at, at stopping uh, any of this from happening, especially when the drug cartels have so many different uh, methods of smuggling drugs and people across the border that we don't even we may have not even found yet. You know, it took us forever to find the tunnel system that was in Mexico. And it's still being used. Yeah, exactly. And you're saying that they're grooming people already to replace them, which is pretty much true. And El Chapo pretty much replaced uh, the original cartel. Well, because El Chapo worked with uh, worked with Pablo Escobar and all of them. That's why he's so good at what he does is because he worked with the most well-known drug smugglers of, you know, the last 40, 50 years. And they're, I mean, they're really just... The thing is, they're just suppliers for demand. So 
at the end of the day, as long as people in the US are going to be using drugs, which honestly is probably going to be forever, people are going to find some way to smuggle it in. So, I mean, I don't really understand, like, the, the tactic that the U.S. has done is they could go after securing our border and actually getting serious about building a wall and having the infrastructure there to, to be able to detect people going past, at least on foot. But instead, they spend all this money, uh, the, the CIA and the DEA and stuff, to go into these other countries and fuck shit up and then go after a drug lord. And then, like we said, like another one just pops up and then they're just satisfying the demand. So um, it's not really going to end. And like you said, the U.S. is just playing catch up and it's it's still happening <laughs> as we speak. But um, just as I was talking about with the last tactic, you know, the cartels are basically trying to overrun the border security. Like I was saying, they put decoys or whatever, except now it's in mass. So a few years ago, they had the big caravan that was coming up from, I don't know if it was from South America, but it went through Central America and it kept gathering migrants basically in each country to try to get to the U.S. border. And this was during the Trump administration, like 2019, I want to say. And they're all headed north. And this was actually encouraged by the cartels because it pretty much overran our immigration system and forced the border agents to leave their posts to take care of all these people. Or, or detain them or whatever. And then all these other people are getting through at the same time. So uh, I don't know if the cartels were doing this then, but apparently they also control a lot of the coyotes that get people over the border. So, you know, the cartels don't only smuggle drugs, they smuggle people as well. Yeah, and in my opinion, that's very likely true because they will exploit people uh, simply that are looking for a better life by bribing them with you know, a coyote, uh, a person to get them across the border in exchange for them either transporting drugs or information to other cartel members on the other side. The reason these cartels can still operate is because they don't operate predictively. As we well know, uh, they use alternative forms of communication and tactics that tend to not leave a trail behind. And this is why they're so elusive and so hard to catch. And it's why, as libertarians, we are so sick and tired of this never-ending drug war, because like I just said, we're playing catch up. We're always playing four, five, six steps behind these cartels. And there's absolutely no reason that the DEA and the ATF and all these other federal agencies continue to uh, go after these drug cartels the way that they do, because they're, they're almost always playing a, a losing game or, or fighting a losing battle. They're not effective at reducing the amount of uh, illegal immigration. In turn, they're not effective at preventing these cartels from doing what they're doing. Um, and so it's, it's, it's almost pointless. The, the more the drug war goes on, it just infuriates so many more people and pisses so many more people off because all these federal resources are being wasted for absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know, you're talking a little bit about the ATF. And one of the things that the border agent pointed out in this interview was that um, so the drugs are coming from south of the border north in the United States. Well, what's getting traded for those drugs? It's not only money, but it's also weapons. So not only is uh, the border crisis a, a, bi a big drug problem, a big you know immigration problem, but it's also a weapons problem because these weapons are getting in the hands of the cartels, which obviously, as we know, are very violent. 
and they're fighting for control and to maintain control, basically. Another thing with the coyotes, I was just thinking too, um, you know, I was talking about how the, the uh, cartels run the coyotes, run the people over the border. They might be using some of these people as decoys to even get drugs over. So I was hearing that they can charge like uh, tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes like forty, fifty thousand dollars to smuggle you over the border. And, you know, there's not even a hundred percent chance that you're going to get over. So they might be sending you right into a trap. And obviously they have the communication systems to figure out, uh, you know, this agent's here and there. And uh, I was talking a little bit about the infrastructure before. So, you know, one of the things is that in Mexico, a lot of these places where they're smuggling the drugs across that there's roads in Mexico that the cartel people can just sit along and then get on their phone and like talk to the people across the border, direct them around, tell them where to go. And there's nowhere where the uh, U.S. border agents can really can really get around quickly. They have to drive straight through the desert to find these people. Meanwhile, they're these people trekking on foot and hiding under bushes and stuff. No, I was going to say the cartels got bunkers and shit everywhere. Like there's bunkers and yeah. safe houses and, and all these other different means of uh, concealing and hiding people that they smuggle over the border to get them to uh, their destination, especially if the cartel has skin in the game in terms of these people smuggling dr either drugs or information for them. Yeah. And another thing that the agent was saying is that it's not just people from South and Central America that they're trying to bring in. It's also people from Somalia and from like some of these Middle Eastern countries. It could be terrorists, could be anybody who's trying to get in and circumvent the immigration system we have to get into this country. And uh, it, one of the trends that he said he noticed in the last few years is, you know, you would see a lot of families trying to come over at the same time. Um, now it's, you know, kids are an issue, but it's a lot of young men now, which is kind of weird. Well, yeah, and you talk about young men and everything. It was the same issue with with Syrian immigration. So we're obviously we're talking about yeah. we're talking about our southern border, but this was the same issue that was brought up with Syrian immigration is because a lot of these people were saying, "Oh, it's it's primarily uh, families and little children and all this other stuff," and it was like an overwhelming forty or fifty percent of Syrian immigrants were uh, fighting age men, and uh, the issue is that. Um, you know, probably a, a, a decent percentage of them were actually coming over here for asylum, which is fine. That's that's beside the point. The problem is that people conveniently leave out the fact that um, that bad people will exploit different means of you know immigration, um, different ways of getting people across the border, different situations to use them to their benefit, and so you know all these fighting age. Syrian immigrants being males or whatever coming over here was a big red flag because then we had all these um these domestic terror attacks start to happen. We had San Bernardino, um we had the uh the pulse shooting that we've talked about on this podcast before. We've had Boston bombing. Yeah, Boston Marathon bombing. We've had all these different um serious domestic terror attacks that happened at the height of that Syrian migrant crisis. And so mm -hmm. it was very clear to everybody else that was paying attention um, that that migrant crisis was being exploited in order to get these uh, terrorist individuals into the country relatively undetected and allow them to commit these crimes or attacks. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
And so uh, kind of what I wanted to get into now is uh, just kind of wanted to dig into why these people are coming. So, you know, I was thinking maybe they have the same mentality as the cartels. Uh, you know, it's easier to get in now when everything's such a mess, everything's so overrun. But during Trump, you know, there's this big push to build the wall, which I think is the reason why we had something like the, the big caravan coming up. I think that people were really encouraged to come because they thought the winter of opportunity was running out. But with Biden, it's the opposite approach, pretty much. So, uh, you know, you got to wonder what gives. And a lot of the issue now, like I said, was is with policy. So uh, one of the things is with migrant children. So I would sit there and wonder, why are people sending their kids alone on this perilous journey? It's so dangerous. You know, people say Mexico is so dangerous, especially like near the border, Tijuana, et cetera. Then I found out, listening to this interview, that there's pretty much virtually no consequence for the kids. Like I was saying before, they would send the kids over the border with the drugs or whatever, and they can't arrest a kid. So, you know, these kids are coming by themselves up to the border, and they get captured by Customs and Border Patrol or whatever, and they get put in the detainment facility for a little while. Well, you know, they're typically carrying this piece of paper, and it has a name and a phone number of a relative that's already in the U.S., and pretty much at that point, CBP is left with no choice but to deliver the kid and basically legitimize this form of immigration, basically say, okay, you know, we're just going to let this kid in the country because there's no better option because you can't just turn the kid away and send them back because uh, that's too dangerous, apparently, even though that's the exact way that they came from. Um, so this kind of begs the question, uh, how many kids are coming in and being trafficked and sent to the wrong family or like not even a family just sent to a place uh I, I mean i'm sure it's not all the kids or a majority of the kids coming in i'm sure a lot of them are just trying to make a better life in the u.s but there's a huge room for undocumented kids to be misallocated and you know we talk about pedophilia being a huge problem in the united states right now this is obviously a huge loophole to where people can get children that nobody knows about and just do whatever with them. Yeah. And the one thing I think people need to remember is that, you know, back in the day, cartels did care about their communities to an extent. You know, uh, we just, we previously mentioned Pablo Escobar. He's a good example. You know, he built um, churches and uh, schools and stuff like that for um, children in his community. But the bottom line is if somebody screwed with him to the point that he got pissed off enough, he didn't hesitate to blow up city blocks and, and kill innocent people when he wanted to um, just to prove a point to somebody. Um, and so cartels have have continuously demonstrated throughout history the last you know several decades um, that they may care in certain instances about their communities, but that, you know, when it comes down to the bottom line, they care about their money and their business more, and they're willing to go to whatever extent uh, they have to in order to secure that business. And so as they've done this, cartels have grown and, and expanded their reach into all these different realms of crimes. Um, so it's, it, you're not just smuggling drugs now, you're now racketeering, sex trafficking, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's likely a certain percentage, specifically young women, who are given to the cartel to be smuggled across the border, obviously by their parents. And their parents are likely thinking, okay, they'll be brought across the border to either a relative or to a safe location where they can build a better life for themselves. But I guarantee you, 
a pretty decent percentage of these uh, these young women who are brought across the border are actually brought across the border to be dropped into these different sex trafficking rings all over the country. Um, their parents are told the complete opposite, that they'll be sent to a relative or will have a better life. But the serious reality of the situation is that a, a lot of them are dumped into these prostitution rings um, and these cartels are then uh, reimbursed very well for doing this. Yeah, and um, you know we live in the Orlando area, so one of the things that's actually really huge in Florida, I guess it's huge in Orlando, huge in Miami, is you know distribution for these, or is like a big hub for uh, sex trafficking and all this. Uh, I think I don't, maybe child trafficking. I don't know, but it when you look at where these hubs are, it's almost always along or near the southern border. Yeah, I I don't necessarily think Florida's clearly like not at southern border anywhere near Mexico, but, but it's boats and stuff. Yeah, 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 boats, and then you also think you you also think about um, the different attractions that are in Orlando. So you have things like Walt Disney World or all these different amusement parks that families will come to with their young children, and these cartels and these uh, that are linked to these sex trafficking rings view that as an opportunistic way to uh, kidnap girls or um, or take advantage of the situation in order to further their their reach, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously the kids is a huge issue and the U.S. is not even prepared. And there's nothing that it can do about this situation with, with the policy that's currently in place. Like there needs to be something done about this. Either they need to turn the kids away or uh, they need to, I don't know, maybe document them better. I'm, you know, I'm, obviously this is a huge issue, but um, I, w- I would say the best, is- you know, the best solution would just be to turn them away because y- you can't just have this slippery slope of just letting people in their country just because. And that kind of segues into our next point. So the other big reason people are coming now is y- you kind of hinted at a little bit before is this asylum loophole. So you know, people fleeing their country for political reasons or whatever. And this is basically how it works. So if a migrant arrives at the border and they claim they're seeking asylum, they're then given what's called a credible fear interview in which they express to a federal agent why they're in need of asylum. Uh, So they can just make up whatever. And then after the interview, their case is to be be, uh, reviewed by the Department of Justice. So, okay, you know, sounds fine, whatever. But the problem is the backlog of asylum-seeking migrants is absolutely huge. So I was doing a little research, and uh, Julian Aguilar of the Texas Tribune reported in February that the backlog had reached over 1.3 million cases. It's gotten so bad to the point that some immigrants in Texas have had their cases pushed back almost five years. And what happens to these 1.3 million people who are awaiting their case? They're granted the right to live in the U.S. in the meantime. So essentially, they're getting into the U.S. And we have the slippery slope of people who are granted citizenship immediately for potentially no reason at all. And I don't even know if they'll ever get that backlog down because uh, I had looked up the backlog numbers for a couple different dates, and I saw that it was constantly increasing. And I'm sure with the Biden administration, with this con- with this crisis now, it's 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 going up even more because these facilities are overflowing. So um, I, I don't know 
and you know, even if they had to deport 10% of the 1.3 million people on the backlog, uh, you know, after five years or whatever, when they get to their case, if the, the, the political situation in 10% of those people's country calms down, or if they find out 10% of the people are lying or whatever, and they have to deport like hundreds of thousands of people, it's going to be such a political nightmare. I don't know how we're going to deal with the situation down the road. So it's only snowballing and getting worse. And to give you an idea, um, I followed so many different people on Twitter and I've seen quite a few of the people that I follow who some of them are even libertarian minded or, or at least at the very least conservative. Um, some of them are like immigrants who have come to this country or whatever and didn't necessarily have citizenship. And you're talking about like, I saw one girl posted her. Um, so she got her certificate of citizenship because she passed the, uh, the citizenship exam. She, I think, is in her 30s. And she came over here when she was like 15 or 16 years old or whatever. And you're talking about she just took the exam in her 30s. So she said she waited almost 15 years oh. for her case to be. Uh, for her case to be examined and they gave her the opportunity to take the citizenship test. She took it and she passed. Mm -hmm. So she's now an American citizen, which um, obviously, you know, congratulations to her. She did it the right way and that's how it should be done. Um, I think all the time, but obviously it's hard for people to do that when your government is so inefficient at doing literally anything that they have such a massive backlog of these cases and see the problem is that that backlog of cases feeds back into the illegal immigration problem because people are just going to continue to come over here illegally because what's the purpose of doing it the right way if you know that you may not even get citizenship for the next you know uh, decade and a half, two decades. There's literally no point to doing it the right way if you're going to have to wait that long. You could be dead by then. And so it's like this kind of argument, this whole, this whole subject is a, a little bit of a slippery slope for libertarians in the sense that um, you know, there are factions of libertarians who strongly believe in open border policy and that, you know, quote unquote, no human is illegal. Um, however, a foundational principle of, of libertarianism is the NAP, the non-aggression principle, which is almost always violated by means of illegal immigration in the sense that a lot of these migrants have ties to cartels or Mexican gangs, and then they commit crimes in the U.S. I'm not saying all of them do, but a lot of them do. You see a lot of reports of MS-13 on the news. You know, that's how, uh, that's what these people are doing once they get into the U.S. They're just committing crimes. The other way, um, if you want to look at it, is that because the, the non-aggression principle applies to different facets of life. It's not just specifically aggressing upon another individual. It's also violating other people's rights. And so you talk about uh, illegal immigrants coming across the border and also, uh, taking jobs from people, uh, leeching off of our welfare and healthcare systems because they're undocumented and therefore can't be charged for anything. They don't have to pay um, taxes like everybody else. They don't have to do all these different things that normal American citizens have to do. They can simply come over here and, and exploit the fact that they're illegal and completely undocumented and just leech off of our system and nobody cares because nobody can track them down. And so this is obviously hurtful to a lot of different American citizens, whether they're forced out of their jobs or whether um, if you're a working American and you're you're paying into the welfare system, you have people coming over here that aren't working because they're undocumented and simply leech off of the welfare system. So all of these different issues kind of 
feed into each other. And so, like I said, it's a slippery slope for libertarians in the fact that by and large, a majority of libertarians believe that no humans are illegal and, and you should have open border policy and everything. But libertarians also need to keep in mind all of the problems that get created by open border policy and all these people coming over here because a lot of them you know, don't care enough to actually participate in the system that we have here in terms of uh, doing everything legally, paying taxes, getting jobs, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's even kind of a hypocrisy for liberals because, you know, all these people are coming in and they're being, a lot of them are being sex trafficked. But um, I, I agree with a lot of what you just said. And uh, we said very many times, it's a liberty-minded podcast. Uh, and we care about the individual's rights to movement. We want people to be able to make a life wherever they want, you know, work hard, uh, do whatever. But we must acknowledge the current situation of the United States and not work in abstracts. And I feel like that's really the weakness of what the Libertarian Party is putting forward. Um, so, like, you know, the current welfare state that is the U.S. penalizes the productive members of society and rewards the less productive members. And, you know, that's not always true in every single circumstance, but it's an economic truth that overall that's what happens. So um, obviously a, a portion of the migrants coming to the U.S. are going to pay little and benefit a ton from these social systems, like you were saying, uh, welfare, healthcare, um, and also infrastructure like the roads and buildings, clean water, good electricity, all this other stuff that we Maho have. Mahoas roads. Mahoas roads. Yeah, I mean... It, it it's pretty yeah for all you know libertarians care about the uh the uh the ownership of the roads and everything you're basically so you know surrendering their ownership of yourself and of your private property the more people that you let into the country especially that aren't uh that you know that are benefiting from things or that are voting over your rights the more people that are coming in the more watered down your voices to fight for your rights in this democracy system that we have um but with all this, you know, people benefiting from the, the infrastructure and stuff, you know, you're not having a social security number, you don't pay income tax, all this other stuff. Um, you know, I, I can't possibly support this essentially open borders policy that we already have. You know, people are already coming in uh, just because, uh, you know, only a certain percentage of them get in. It's still millions of people. There's a lot of people that have expired visas in the United States. That's a huge thing. Millions and millions. And then you have the people that are awaiting the trial. That's millions. So we pretty much already have an open borders, open borders policy. So libertarians and liberals alike pretty much lose their credibility when they argue in the abstract for free immigration while our country is right in front of their eyes, tangibly crumbling from its own debt already. So where are your priorities at? Is it for somebody that you don't know or is it for you and the people that live around you? And uh, you know, it's it's much the same when the Libertarian Party spent the entirety of 2020 supporting Marxist Black Lives Matter and then crying hate crime over like the 10 interracial murders that they decide to adopt a year. You know, it, instead of highlighting the very tangible and uh, highly relatable ways that the government shutdowns fucked all Americans, you know, put tens of millions of people out of jobs, decreased the income for almost everybody you know, destroyed uh, a lot of people's savings and, their, you know, a lot of people's retirement and stuff like that. Just, just real quick, uh, two points I wanted to make. 
Um, the first one is I wanted to kind of plug this back into an episode uh, that we've done prior, uh, you know, the Democrat plot to take over. That was a big episode for us. Um, we broke down a lot of different things. And I think this plugs in well to that episode because the problem is that the illegal immigration problem, if you if you watch the way that the Democratic Party functions and the way that they handle border crises like this, um, they typically opt for the road less traveled, which is going to be just doing absolutely nothing, not giving a shit, not doing anything about it, because they know that once these uh, illegal immigrants get into the United States and because the Democratic Party didn't care enough to stop them or do anything to prevent them from coming in here, when it comes time to vote and the Democratic Party wants literally everybody who's anybody in the country to be able to vote. The Republicans they, want you out. Yeah. And they don't, you know, Democrats want to do away with voter ID, um, just having any identification in general um, to vote. Who are these people going to vote for? They're going to vote for the Democrats who didn't do anything to stop them from coming in. And therefore, the Democrats continue to keep their power via all these people who came came into the country completely undocumented and have absolutely no rights here. Yeah, that's that's a really good thing to point out because the libertarians, when supporting what's going on right now and all the you know people coming through the border and migrating to the U.S. illegally you know, them being on the same side of the Democrats is just fucking them in the end, because like we said, they're going to be Democrat voters by and large. So they're not going to vote for liberty. They're not going to vote for lower taxes, especially for, you know, people that were already here. They're going to vote for uh, free stuff for the people that just came in and all this other things. Yeah. And that brings me to the second point that I wanted to make, which is again, uh, to point out, we've talked about this again on our podcast before. we are a liberty-minded podcast, but we are not members of the Libertarian Party, um, the big-name LP, because the big-name LP is just that. They're libertarians in name, but they're not actual libertarians and don't really give a shit about um, libertarian policy or anything of the sort. They act more like liberals than anything. Um, and so when we say that we are a libertarian podcast or that, that me and Tom are libertarians, it's we believe in the contextual and, and factual libertarianism, not the made up BS that the big name uh, Libertarian National Party spews. There's there's a yeah, big I difference. Be- yeah. Yeah, I believe in Austrian economics and uh, freedom for all people, you know, generally. But it, obviously how people deal with current situations and uh means and ends are completely different things so i definitely disagree with a lot of both means and ends with the libertarian party because they're not principled at all they just kind of roll over and they're bitchy and whiny like liberals and they use a lot of their tactics and hop on the same side most of the time but uh yeah like i was saying they they focus on the wrong things and that's why i really don't think that they're credible they do kind of the same thing as the mainstream media which is, you know, sweep under the rug all these really important things and then focus on all this stupid shit. So they want to distract us from, you know, the big issues like inflation or immigration, uh, our national debt, which is skyrocketing, or um, things like international affairs in, in favor of manufacturing crises like corona or uh, Russian collusion or the pedophile Prince Philip dying. I mean, it's, it's all over the news. And everybody's posting, oh, my God, I'm so sad. 
um, over this guy who's literally just sat on a throne his whole life. Yeah, and I think the the one last thing that we wanted to touch on here, because obviously, you know, it took us quite a bit of time to get through what we wanted to talk about in terms of border policy and the the border crises going on. Um, the last thing we wanted to touch on is something going on with the Floridian educational system right now. Um, obviously, you know, COVID has created a struggling environment for, for both the students and the teachers. Tom's mom is a teacher, so he's pretty well aware of the shortcomings of digital education, uh, particularly with young children. I know my uh, girlfriend's mom is also a teacher, uh, but she teaches, I believe, high school. So she's in a little bit of a different situation. But, you know, Tom gets to hear almost on a daily basis how how these elementary school kids, you know, can't sit in their seats and forget to mute their mics during a lesson or, or uh, disconnect for absolutely no reason. Tom even told me that there was uh, one kid that logged off for lunch and just never came back the rest of the day. So there's definitely lots of issues going on with uh, Florida's educational system. I think Tom wanted to touch on a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. So like you're saying, I, I get to hear a lot of it. And um, so one one thing that's been a development for the past couple of months is uh, they're they're trying to pass or, uh, you know, get this this order through with the Florida Department of Education, which would waive the end of course exam requirement to pass certain courses in secondary school. So like middle high school, uh, you know, your your end of year math exam or science or whatever that you need to do well on to pass or that has a certain weight on your overall grade. They want to completely, uh, I don't know if they're dropping the exam. I'm sure in a lot of cases they will just not even have the exam. Um, but this, this finally passed. So this is going to happen. So that that's why we're talking about it today. They want to basically, like I said, take out, take out these end of course exams and make the students passing more dependent on their overall course grade which I guess is fine in some circumstances. Um, but also for this FCAT state-issued exam, which is just a Florida thing, which is something that you're critically required to pass in third grade to move on to fourth grade. So you have to get like a three or four, uh, I think it's at a five, in order to, to pass this FCAT exam and then move from third grade to fourth or else you're retained. And this is like a big stepping stone. Like every year you got to take the FCAT reading and math, but specifically in third grade, it's uh, it's one of those hurdles you have to pass just to move on. And they've removed this requirement as well. Obviously, this removing the exam requirement is pretty much just a response to the growing number of students who are doing absolutely terrible in their classes as a result of the government basically scaring the people and their kids out of the schools and flipping education on its head. Like uh, I know my mom has had to learn completely different ways to teach, moving her education, I'm sorry, moving her teaching to entirely online for the first couple of weeks, or I think like the first month of, um, of school here in Florida, of public school. And um, then the, the students, you know, transfer the school, she was still doing the online, but then now they had more students transfer to her school midway throughout the year. So she's teaching both simultaneously, she's teaching students in school and on the computer. So I don't imagine how that's a positive outcome for either the students in there or at home. But um, I, I brought up some statistics uh, just because I knew, obviously, with all this that it's going to be a nightmare. Um, 
I remember when I was in college, I had a lot of online courses because I was working a lot at the time. So the online courses save me time for, you know, not only having to sit there through the entire lecture all the time, or like I can watch the lecture online and speed it up or watch it whenever. Um, that was nice and that was convenient, but my grades were not good and I was not motivated to study. I did not know what was the correct thing to be focusing on, uh, the correct concepts or whatever. And it's, it's really tough. So I knew just because of all that, my experience with online school when I was in college, I knew that these elementary school kids who have absolutely no discipline, that they must be, ab that they must be struggling absolutely crazily. So I brought up some statistics from the Miami Herald, and I'll put the link in the description, but the number of habitually truant students in Broward County, which is in Southeast Florida, skyrocketed from 1,700 last year to 8,200 this year, uh, which was uh, 2020, which is nearly a 400% jump. So you're talking about students who their parents aren't home or they're just doing whatever. Uh, nobody's, you know, looking out for them. I don't know what's going on, but uh, obviously this is because of the coronavirus thing. And there's this high schooler that lives next door to me. And apparently he didn't attend school for the first few weeks. So I guess there's just all these students and nobody's uh, accounted for. And obviously if you're doing the online classes, even if your parents are in the in the house, you could just be in your room and freaking sit there and not do jack. You could be playing video games. But um, if your parents are out of the house, you don't have to do anything. And obviously there's repercussions for these students, but they don't they don't know or they don't care because they're too young. And, uh, you know, this is a high school next door to me that did this. So imagine how bad it is with elementary school students where they just straight up don't give a shit or they don't know or they might have technical difficulties like like Chase was saying that I was telling him about before uh, and they can't fix things and they may or may not be at home being uh, supervised by a parent and they obviously can't get that hands on help that a teacher is going to provide um, weak attention spans too. Oh, yeah, that's huge. I mean, just even myself, like I remember I would be in school in class and I would not have an issue paying attention like i would not look at my phone or anything but just sitting at home doing um doing schoolwork or stuff like i, I couldn't get through it i would just yeah. be on my phone or uh texting or playing video games or walking around yeah think about all these kids that have add like they're not gonna uh, if they can barely pay attention in physical classes what makes you think that they're gonna pay attention to a computer and sit there for an hour or two hours or however many hours a day they have to sit through all their classes. Because, you know, even, you know, you're talking about your experience with online classes. Like, my experience is pretty much the same thing. Um, the way I would say to look at it is you have to, as corny as it sounds, you kind of have to look at online classes like you would economics. Everything is a trade-off. And so with online classes, the trade-off is convenience. And so you're not attending uh, a lecture or a physical class you have the convenience of doing it from the mm -hmm. comfort of your bedroom or your house or or wherever but the trade-off is going to be uh you have more convenience but you know with that convenience you also have the struggle of remembering your assignments um remembering oh, yeah. to uh to stay on top of everything um and do everything from from your computer to set reminders for things um 
you don't have a physical planner that you're given because you're doing everything from home. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have no way to remind yourself unless you're logging everything in your computer or your phone. You then have to sit still through the entire lecture. You know, um, one of the biggest things that I remember doing in high school and college is, you know, having um, being able to take notes off of your friends or something like that. So like if you so like in high school, if you took notes down because your teacher was talking about something, but you weren't there, you could easily go to your uh, your friend the very next day and say, oh, hey, did you take the notes yesterday or whatever? Can I like take a picture of them or something like that? Um, in college, they actually have designated note takers for kids that can't attend lecture or whatever. Um, but you don't have that in online classes. It's kind of just, if you miss the lecture, like if you don't watch it or, um, you don't have notes written down, you're screwed. And so it's kind of the same sort of thing. So yeah, you do have, um, an increase in convenience, but you also have more than likely a decrease in grades, a decrease in, uh, efficiency, a decrease in, overall retention of information because you're not physically hearing it in person. You're not in person to the point where um, teachers can hold you accountable for not paying attention, that kind of thing. And so obviously grades are going to suffer because of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, just before we move on, just talking about college online classes, because college is obviously still online by and large right now. If you have any questions or you don't know anything, I would just, you know, go up to the professor after class and ask him something. Or, you know, you could talk to another student, get their notes or, uh, you know, record like one lecture. I recorded the professor talking and then texted to somebody. Um, and then another thing you can't do, which is huge because I'm in business. I-, I went to business school is you can't network around with people. You don't get to know people. You don't get to have any sort of personality. Um, you know, obviously. We- I didn't do a lot of research into this, but it's, it's something we've talked about a little bit before, before is that there's a huge mental health crisis because obviously kids aren't getting any social interaction. And this is going to be really exacerbated when we start moving down into people that are younger ages that are still in the developmental stage um, and they're not ever having uh, seen people's faces. They're not ever having like... It, done physical embrace with people that's absolutely crazy so when we when we unravel from this situation it's going to be a nightmare like kids are going to have breakdowns there's going to be like uh people like kids getting intimidated by people's faces like i don't i don't know what's wrong like somebody makes a mean face at you you start crying i don't know uh these kids are it's it's just i'm I'm sure you can look up the psychology of it but it's it's disgusting you know i brought up the uh grade suffering because of this. And we actually had a couple different statistics from the statistics that we brought up a little bit earlier. So um, back in Broward County here in Florida, the percentage of students who received one or more Fs by the end of the first grading period nearly tripled to 11% since school has gone to online. And Miami-Dade County's greatest concern uh, has been with 10,000 missing students who never showed up for school and 10,300 online only students who are identified as at risk of failing entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just like what I was saying before. You straight up, you are, you aren't there. Um, you may or may not log on to your computer, but nobody's keeping you accountable. They're not going to have truancy officers visit 10,000 different households. That's how, how do you do that? That's... Like I said, that's a nightmare, just like the, you know, going and deporting a bunch of 1.3 million immigrants. 
So nobody's keeping these kids accountable. And I know uh, I was reading, I think it was in that story or another one uh, with the statistics that they were, that this one girl was saying that she wasn't required to have her camera on during her class or a professor, or I'm sorry, her teacher didn't even know what was going on. So she's like, I would just scroll TikTok all day. And hell, I mean, I even remember in college, there was this one class where I straight up didn't learn shit in or like people would be presenting and I would just scroll through Instagram literally the entire time and it'd be like, oh, it's over. But that was just a bullshit class. But obviously these kids are doing it and they're going to be in like math or whatever. You know, the, the overall thing I wanted to really get at here with this education thing is essentially what's happening is our state government of Florida is responding to the problem that they've essentially created by moving the goalposts. So really what they're going to do is lower the bar uh, by removing these end of course exam requirements to move on and FCAT and stuff like that. What they're doing is lowering the bar to pass more kids and then saying it's all right. You know, when reality, these kids still need to score well in the courses to pass, which uh, they aren't even doing like we pointed out a second ago. So I don't even know if this is going to solve the main issue at hand, which is graduating more students and making it look better. And it also creates this problem, uh, like we talked about with the separate graduation ceremonies, to where there's no standardized way to compare people's achievements. So before you have standardized testing, but you know now we're getting rid of that, and it's up to each school now to define success for the student with no outside comparison. So it's, it's apples to oranges, essentially. So it's like comparing someone's home runs on a little league field versus a major league one. And I remember, uh, like I said, my mom's a teacher, so she talks about, uh, you know, I like private schools because I'm a libertarian. I think they're, they're a great thing. Uh, but she talks about the private schools around here. They they make it really easy for the students. And then when the students transfer to the public schools, uh, that they're having problems. So essentially, that's what's going to happen with these public schools is they're not going to have any sort of any sort of measuring stick to quantify or qualify any sort of uh, student's education. And it it's just going to keep going down and down and down because they're just going to make it easy. and like we said, they're lowering the bar because so many people are already failing. They're going to have to keep lowering it in order to satisfy either that or they're going to have to completely reopen the schools and revert it back to normal because that's obviously what was working before. I mean, I think that people should and you know the students should have a choice to whatever they like best, but the parents as well as the students, you know, they need to make a value judgment, like you said, based upon the trade-off of what's my education going to be like versus what you know what's convenient can i sit on my ass at home or skip school whenever i want well and keep in mind too so the way that public schools in at least in this state work is that you know um, schools are graded based on their passing rate so how many kids are passed along to the next grade and ultimately to graduation and so if the standard to pass on to the next grade and ultimately what you learned in in the grade that you're leaving if that standard goes down, then these schools, their the overall school grade um, is going to suffer, and then these schools are going to be threatened by the state in terms of being shut down. The state can just ultimately, let's say, um, the school receives a failing grade. Uh, the state of Florida can say, "Okay, your funding's gone. You're you're done. The school's completely gone." And then um, all the kids in that general area that were going to this school that are zoned for it then have no school to go to. 
So that's one problem that it creates, but it also creates another problem in the fact that kids are simply going to be passed along from grade to grade without necessarily satisfying the learning requirements to move on. And so this, in turn, fails those kids as they don't learn or retain the necessary information, and school thus gets harder and harder for them as they progress forward and will leave them with with no choice but to either repeat the grade that they just completed uh, or simply drop out. And, you know, by moving the goalposts so that you can take the easiest possible way out, and I'm referring to the state government, um, you're failing the next generation. The average IQ Mm -hmm. in America is already at one of its lowest points literally ever. And think, think about, yeah, think about what this is going to mean for these kids, you know, no quality education, no standards to meet your goals to achieve. Um, It creates a new standard that is easily met with zero effort required. And these kids are going to become mediocre because nobody, nobody has goals set for them. Nobody sets standards for them. And, you know, like I'm sure the kids that truly want to succeed um, and do well in life are going to find success somewhere. But the ones that, you know, you know, and I'm not a stranger to this either. Cause I goofed off in high school too. Like I had, I had years where uh, I was doing shit that I probably shouldn't have been doing and goofing off and not paying attention. There were years where my grades suffered and stuff like that. Um, I'm thankful that I got myself, I put myself back in check and got back on track and, you know, graduated with a really high GPA and that kind of thing. But, you know, there are going to be a good percentage of kids that goof off and are going to get completely left in the dust. And I mean, right now, just based on the statistics we just read off, there's clearly a lot of them. (laughs) And it's like, it's sad to see that, that all these kids are going to get left in the dust and not be able to obtain good paying jobs later on. They're not going to be able to provide for families. We definitely are very familiar with the fact that in America, when you fail out of the educational system and you and you can't provide for yourself, you're going to resort to crime, um, drugs, and a lot of these other things in order to provide for yourself. And it's that's just not a good life to live. And so I think that the the state of Florida clearly is just they think they're solving one problem, but in turn they're creating three or four more. Um, and the problems that they're creating are arguably worse than the one that they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's crazy because throughout all of this, the Democrats were obviously the ones pushing a lot of this, uh, you know, push back the opening of schools. Um, I know certain places in the United States like California and also Chicago, there's huge fights with the, the teachers unions. And I don't even think they opened the schools at all this year. I, uh, these Democrats, their their whole, you know, their whole thing about education is we want to pour so much money into it. We want to make it as good as it can. We, the government should provide, uh, you know, the best education in the world for these kids, and it should be free. Uh, and you know, yet the free education that they already have, the, you know, the system that they have a lot of influence over, you know, they're the ones supporting these shutdowns that are by and large destroying kids' grades. So they're the ones destroying the education system themselves, basically. And the one thing that I do want to point out, too, is that because, you know, Tom and I know, um, obviously, Tom's mom is a teacher. Like I said, my girlfriend's mom is a teacher, and she actually teaches middle school, not high school. I need to correct myself there. Um, but, you know, we we know lots of different people who are teachers. And so um, when we talk about things like this, it, it is 
not at all a reflection of them as individuals or them as teachers or whatever. You know, there are by and large lots of teachers who care about students, who care about trying to better their lives and trying to educate them. The problem is that students also need to be held accountable. Um, students need to be able to set goals for themselves. And if these students are seeing their very own state government not set goals for them and say, ah, like we can do away with all these requirements, like who really cares? Like, let's just make it as easy as possible. These kids are going to lose motivation because if you have, if you have that fire lit under your ass that these teachers are going to fail you if you don't retain the information and that you need to, you need to make good grades, you need to pass your tests in order to uh, not be held back and to, to move on to the next grade. Like if that bar gets lowered, these kids aren't going to put in any effort and they're not going to care anymore. It's that fire being lit under their ass by the teachers who do care and the teachers that do want to see them succeed. That's what drives these students to be successful. And so if you remove that motivation um, and you remove those requirements, the teachers can try to motivate them all they want. But if they know that at the end of the day, in the state's eyes, they're going to be passed on to the next grade no matter what, their motivation is just going to completely go down the shitter. Like they're not going to care. Yeah. And that's what I think a lot of people don't realize is like you can have good teachers and you can have good individuals around you that want to see you succeed. But the state in specifically uh, in, in this is instance, we're talking about Florida state government. Um, if the government does not care enough to set these bars and requirements, then just the overall educational system is going to end up an entire failure as if it isn't already. Yeah, and I saw that uh, one of the statistics also in the article was that a lot of the students this year are moving to uh, charter schools at record rates and, you know, charter schools, private schools, whatever, you know, you're going to give these kids an opportunity to have an alternate education besides the legacy state education system that Florida has. It's going to be better because the state can just come in in this circumstance and completely ruin education for a ton of kids, ruin their future, and the parents and the students essentially have no say about it. And the teachers' unions take control and they just do whatever uh, because there's no market force of supply and demand. There's no buddy that's going to say, "Hey, I don't want to go to public school anymore. I'm just going to pull the funding and you know take it elsewhere." You still got to pay your taxes. Like the teachers are still going to get paid no matter what. But the, the students don't have any say, and it's their education that's at stake. And they're the ones being forced through the public school systems. They have to pass public school. You know, it's you know, pretty much part of the law unless you turn 16 and drop out or whatever. Um, and these, student, or these teachers, it's, you know, it's their voluntary job to be working in this education system. And they're basically bossing around people. It's like, imagine if you worked at a business and you just treated customers like shit, and then you had to keep forcing them to come back and give you money. And then one day you come in like these teachers unions and you say, you know, I don't even want to show up. Like, I don't want to give you your haircut or whatever. And their hair just has to grow long. They can't go to anybody else or in, you're like, well, in this circumstance, they can, they end up do going to somebody else, but they still uh, like with taxes, you still got to pay. So you're still paying to get the haircut, whether or not you're getting it. And that's what's happening with education here. Um, and whether or not the schools are open or they're closed, like we were saying with these statistics, the full the full service of education is not being provided right now. And I've come to this conclusion that, you know, I graduated in 2020 from college. I was one of the uh, 
I, I barely got it. Well, I, I experienced a little bit of the COVID education, but I, you know, barely got out and didn't have to deal with a bunch of this shit. But uh, I'm, I'm starting to think that pre 2020 education is going to be worth a lot more because they're moving all these bars. And I'm, I'm like you're saying, these kids are beco- becoming lazy. They don't know anything. They don't have to pass the same tests as everybody else. And, you know, you're talking about the school grades, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to manipulate it to make the schools rated better. I was even hearing that they're trying to remove the grades for, for the schools overall. So like you're saying, depending on the passing rate, the school gets an A through an F or whatever. Um, they're trying to get rid of all of that. So they're trying to lower the bar for kids to pass and they're trying to get rid of the school grades. So this is just going to kind of create a system where there's absolutely no way to figure out how good of an education your kid's getting. Um, we've already seen that the education they're getting right now is shit. So, you know, Florida is just in for a disaster here. Well, and two, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to talk about this for too much longer. I don't want to further the argument and get into something else. But if you just looked at statistics of, um, I wouldn't even necessarily say in the state of Florida, but just nationwide, statistics on how many uh, people who graduate from college with a bachelor's degree actually end up getting jobs in the field that they were educated in the number is I'm probably very, not yeah the very 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 it's very 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 slim margin like the 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 percentage of kids that actually find jobs in their field like it's it's almost exclusively limited to healthcare kids that go in for mm-hmm. um for nursing or something like that or and, like and engineering yeah or or engineering or, or something like that um infrastructure it's it's almost exclusively engineering and healthcare um, where these people are able to find jobs. Anybody else that should, and and I'm not even saying that they're they're useless degrees. They could be useful. It's just the value that is now placed on bachelor's degrees has significantly diminished over the last decade. And so a lot of these businesses that ten years ago were hiring tons of people with bachelor's degrees. Um, have now limited their hiring to only people with master's degrees because mm-hmm. they see that so many people are coming are going to college and graduating with bachelors that it's almost like it doesn't really prove anything if you have one. Um, and so a lot of these companies elect to only hire people that have master's degrees because it shows that, okay, they graduated high school, they went to a university or a college and they got a four-year degree, but then they chose after they got their four-year degree not to be done with school and go back for another two to three or four years, depending on whatever program they selected, um, and and go to school for even longer to gain more knowledge and help themselves retain more information and learn more about their field. Um, And so I feel as if that kind of proves another failure of the educational system just as a whole in the fact that the bachelor's degrees are virtually useless now. Um, you're yep. really only valued if you go to college and you get a master's. You know, it's very hard to find, you know, I graduated in in 2018 and I still don't have a job in the field that I was educated in. And it's 2021. It's mid almost midway through 2021 and I still can't find a job in the field that uh, my degree is in. And so mm-hmm. I just personally, just me personally, I think that's another failure of the educational system is I was taught when I was younger that I would go to college for four years. And then once I graduated from college, all my hard work was going to immediately pay off and I'd find a good paying job. Still hasn't happened yet three years after the fact. 
and that's what's annoying and i think like and i think that's why a lot of um a lot of young adults now especially in their 20s and 30s are trying to educate the younger generation and and tell them you know uh, don't make the same mistakes we did. You know, our parents told us that college was going to pay off for us. College was a good investment and that, you know, getting an education and getting a degree was going to help us later in life. But you're having tons of kids graduate with all these co- all this college loan debt uh, that they're struggling to pay back because they can't find a good paying job with the degree that they used the money to get. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just a, it's almost like a vicious cycle. And so the one thing that I would say for, you know, that people can do is just educate the younger generation and and try to help them not make the same mistakes that we did. Don't lead them down the same, uh, the same rabbit hole that we were led down because we've been, we've been hoodwinked and bamboozled, uh, into thinking, (laughs) into thinking one thing when reality is entirely different right now. And so I would hate to see, um, the younger generation go through a, a miserable, and failing educational system, especially here in the state of Florida right now, get to college, blow a bunch of borrowed money from a bank on on a, online classes. Yeah, on online classes where you're more than likely not even going to retain seventy five percent of the information that you're being taught, and then go and apply for a job that you're inevitably not going to get because you only have a four year degree. It's just it yeah. it's just it's just a stupid circle. You're like a dog chasing your tail. It's just, it's never going to end until problems like the educational system are, are, are addressed properly. And it's not just a band-aid solution like this. Yeah. And it's, um, like you're talking about how it's more important to have healthcare or, uh, engineering background. So, you know, they, it, it started to become a thing once we get to like middle school or high school, they start talking about like STEM, like you want to go into science, technology, engineering, math, like that's a big thing. That's cool or whatever. But, you know, just growing up, uh, First of all, I don't really even want to go into those fields um, because that just doesn't interest me. But, you know, just growing up, it's just always like this thing like, oh, find something or an education field that you feel mildly passionate about and go to college and, you know, major in that, get a degree and you're set, like you're chilling after that. And now, you know, what they don't tell you is that that's really just the beginning. So, um, like, I remember when, like I said, I went to business school, like I remember when I was first getting enrolled at my college. I was doing like the orientation and stuff. They were like, oh, uh, like, you know, can the engineering students leave the room? Uh, you're going to go and sign up for your classes over here. And then they all like got in line, left the room. And they like did it each by every major. And they're like, can the business students leave the room? And it was just like two thirds of the whole auditorium just left. And, uh, you know, what they don't teach you is like, there is job growth, to, you know, this, all this other stuff. But you know, I'm out of college. I, I have a degree. It's not like people are uh, banging at the door to try to get me to work at their company. But, you know, there's certain things like if you go to tech school and you become a welder, or you become a plumber, it's like there's there's work everywhere and you're going to make probably way more money right out of the gate than anybody who has an education. So you're working your fingers to the bone. So, you know, there's a uh, there's a give and take for that. But like you said, we've been bamboozled. Like it's, it's, uh, we've been put through the system and we're just like, what the hell do we do now? And the colleges are laughing at the bank. The banks are laughing to their own bank. Um, a lot of the student loan debt is forgiven by the government completely. So it, it, it's just a system where nobody really is looking out for you. So the people need to start looking out for themselves. And like you said, we got to educate people and tell them not to make the same mistakes because I mean, I value my education. I, 
appreciate some of the things I learned in college, but it definitely could have been harder. I don't think that college was extremely tough. Like I consider myself at the higher end of the IQ spectrum, but I don't think, you know, college was anything that I was super proud of myself for. And then I graduated and my family's like, oh, this is amazing. And I'm just like, I mean, I, I don't feel that great. And like I said, like there's not, you don't feel that special, especially because there's not people banging at your door to to give you job offers and get you into the field that you want to get in. I, I'm done ranting. This subject gives me a headache, but I, it was just a point that I felt like throwing out there, um, especially if we have, you know, uh, younger audiences or um, an audience that may not may be in high school or, or may currently be in college. Like I just want everybody to know what they're in for basically, but um, I'm, I'm done for this week. Yeah, that was a fiery one. I mean, I was kind of maybe thinking that we were going to keep it to that, just, just the immigration topic, but uh, the education one was good to rattle off on. And I think that um, although we're kind of tired of talking about it now, but we could probably go back and talk more about it. Cause like I said, I have some more insider information about how, this past year has rolled out and how it's been, uh, at least in Florida. And it's been an absolute nightmare in terms of logistics and in terms of keeping people safe and doing what uh, all these government measures are supposed to do. So yeah, like, like we said, uh, I think I think we'll uh, leave it there. Yeah, I think we're done for this week. Um, but thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to that extremely long episode. I know it was a lot. Uh, we had a lot to get through, but I hope y'all enjoy the topics of conversation. Uh, and until next time, peace be easy. Thanks for listening, guys. Tune in next week. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think this whip is too long. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Free For All podcast. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to follow and subscribe to the show and connect with us on Instagram to keep up to date with all the latest content. Peace.